Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Amber Morgan and the Manny Camper. So if you're a longtime listener of this show, you know that Amber was a guest back in February of 2018. She's one of those surprising Amarillo creatives. I mean, who else do you know who has a history in the New York fashion world and is a local nail artist? That's Amber. She works with clients at Ugly Press Salon, but she's also the owner of The Manny Camper, a mobile nail salon that's perfect for birthday parties, bridal bachelorette parties, girls' night out, employee appreciation, and so much more. Go to themannycamper.com or follow The Manny Camper on Instagram. Today's guest is Chris Seals. Chris moved to Amarillo about 15 years ago. He was working as an economist, and his consulting clients ranged from AT&T to the city of New Orleans and Eco-Canada. But a few years ago, Chris and his father joined forces to open Still Austin, an independent craft whiskey distillery and the first whiskey distillery in the Austin city limits since the days of Prohibition. And Chris runs it as a CEO, even though he still lives in Amarillo. So he splits his time now between Amarillo and Austin, and he and Still Austin just introduced a new limited-release bourbon whiskey that's made from grains that were grown here in the Texas panhandle. So Chris is a fascinating guy. The Still Austin story is just as captivating. Uh, this was this was a really entertaining conversation. So here's Chris Seals. Chris Seals, welcome to the Hamarillo Podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm very excited about being here. Good. Well, I'm I'm glad you're excited. I'm happy to have you. I know that we're going to talk about whiskey and we're going to talk about building the business that, that you're CEO of now. But before we get to all that stuff, I'd like to just kind of hear your story related to Amarillo. So how did you end up here in the first place? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I moved here uh, now about 15 years ago. Okay. And uh, it was right when my second daughter was born. Their mom is from Pampa originally and had been wanting to move back to the West Texas and the Panhandle for a long time. And at the time I was working as an economist and I could, I could kind of work from anywhere. Okay. Didn't really matter where I lived as long as there was an airport. And strangely, we moved here from Houston and I could actually get to the airport a little bit faster, leaving my home in Amarillo, getting on a flight and flying to Houston to fly anywhere else yeah. than I could leave my house in Houston, right. drive through Houston traffic and get to the airport. That's uh, pretty incredible. <laughs> uh, so it actually worked out just fine. And so I, I moved here. I lived in the Biven neighborhood, Biven's neighborhood. And now I live over in uh, West Hills. Okay. And when I first moved here, I had a little bit of time, difficult time kind of transitioning to life here because I was working from home and I didn't know anyone. It can be in pretty Amarillo. isolating. It can be. Yeah. I, I remember like there were like days I was like, I'm definitely going to at least go out to the yard today. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to stay in the house all day long. Uh, so it, it took a while for me to kind of get settled, but now that I am, I love it. Where did you grow up? So I was born in Missouri. I grew up a lot on a farm that my great-great-grandfather homesteaded 
And even though I never lived permanently on the farm, I spent basically all of my summers and holidays and everything there. And uh, my brothers and sister and I still operate it today. Oh, okay. Uh, so the farm's been in our family for about 128 years now, uh, Day Farm in northwestern Missouri, uh, just a little bit north of Kansas City. And then I moved to Texas when I was in second grade. I moved to Plano. My dad was working in Plano at that time. And so we, to Plano we came and I grew up there and in the McKinney area. And uh, then we moved out to East Texas, Sulphur Springs. Then I moved to Austin to go to school at UT. Graduated from UT with my undergraduate and then Houston and then to Amarillo. So that's uh, a number of Texas cities that are pretty different from Amarillo. I mean, do you recall having like a, a perception of the city before you moved here? I mean, did you have any experience with Amarillo? The first time that I ever came to Amarillo, I had a very memorable experience. I ate at Dyer's Barbecue. Yeah. And it was the first time I'd ever sat down and the entire table, which we ate family style, was entirely filled with meat. Okay. There was nothing but meat on the entire No vegetables. Day. No Even no the sides were meat. whatsoever. And when I first moved to Amarillo, I had an experience that happened uh, actually just outside of Blue Sky. Mm -hmm. And it really, I think, kind of captured for me the difference between Amarillo and my life like in metropolitan Texas. So... We were sitting outside and there was a wreck that happened right at the corner of Western and I-40. Okay. And in the wreck, someone we later learned had stolen a truck and they, they wrecked the truck right there. They ran into a lady and then they ran into a post and then... They got the truck stuck. Mm -hmm. And so when they got it stuck, they decided they were going to flee the scene. And I could see all of this just sitting outside. Right. So I did what every Houstonian would do. I got out my cell phone and I called the professionals to right. come and take care of the situation. I called the police, but not the people in the restaurant. Like they got up. They jumped over the fence and they began to chase the guy. Really? They took him down with a punch and literally someone had a rope in their car and they hogtied him and waited for the police to arrive. That was how we took care of justice in Amarillo. Okay. And so I really felt like I've definitely arrived at a very different sort of place. Hmm. I really kind of fell in love with the... Yeah, I was going to say, was the, that something that impressed you or uh, something that you're like, man, I don't know if I could do that. I don't I, have a rope with me at all times. I loved it. I thought it was hilarious and awesome. And they, these people were like sort of fearless, right? Like they didn't think about, you know, this guy could have a gun or this guy could have something bad that he's going to you know, yeah. stab me or what. They didn't care. They were just going to punch the guy and tie him up and wait for the police to get there to, you know, take him away. And sure enough, they did. And they were very proud to be able to hand over having apprehended mm -hmm. the guy. They already had gotten his statement, the story, kind of what had happened. They knew they'd already called the guy who whose truck had been stolen because they recognized the truck. And wow. could find, I mean, it was just like talk about like independence not caring about what other people think, 
Uh, like they just take matters into their own hands. I was just like so impressed with the people of Amarillo from that experience. And it became one of my very favorite memories of like what I feel when I'm here about like our uh, West Texas independence. That's an incredible story. It was pretty good. It doesn't, it doesn't surprise <laughs> me. I've never had an experience like that or seen that, but okay, it, it, it fits. Yeah. Tell me about being an economist. Um, that's a career choice that I uh, imagine is fairly rare uh, mm-hmm. among people that, that you might meet here in Amarillo. So tell me how you got into that and, and what you did. Like most of the things in my life, I kind of happen into what I ended up doing. But I... After I got my degree in English from UT, I put it to work working in a coffee shop, uh, slinging the bean Mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of years in Houston. And one of our regulars was a economist, Ray Dutch. And I kind of got tired after a couple of years of uh, serving coffee. And I asked him, you know, I told him I was kind of looking for something different. He said, well, why don't you come work for me? In the he had a, a research data lab uh, at the University of Houston. I, I had absolutely no qualifications to hmm. do that, but I was like, "Sure, why not?" Yeah, that sounds great. So I went to go and work for him. While I was there, I did my master's and uh, actually have my degree is actually a business degree uh, with a concentration in finance. And so I don't actually have like an economics degree. Okay. My specialization was in statistics and kind of quantitative methods uh, for you know, kind of geeking out and studying something, trying to identify the cause of something. Uh, so I did a lot of work in that area and then in finance. Okay. And then I got a job working for JP Morgan uh, in their corporate finance uh, client advisory group in Houston. So I was doing like investment banking activities for Houston clients. And then Enron melted down. So all of a sudden there was really no need for our group or me. And so uh, JP Morgan let me know that they wouldn't be needing me anymore. And I had to kind of figure out what I was going to do. So I went back to talk to Ray, um, my old professor, and said, I'm out of a job. He had done a little bit of consulting for basically one client, and I'd helped him a little bit with that. And I said, well, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to build a little bit of a consulting practice. And so that started what, for about 15 years, was my job. Okay. And so we worked, I did a lot of, when you're when you're an economist, you got to be kind of a jack of all of all trades. Uh, you got to do a lot of different stuff. And so I did some work in feasibility studies. Uh, so if uh, engineers kind of estimate that uh, we're going to build a new bridge and it's going to cost $200 million, what's the chances that that bridge may cost $2 billion? Uh, that, those chances, that's what I used to get hired to figure out. I worked some in IT and telecom. I did some work for tourist destinations, helping them to develop into from like a B-level tourist destination to an A-level tourist destination. Disaster recovery. So after things kind of went south with New Orleans, after Katrina, Mm -hmm. I helped to do some work to revitalize downtown 
and bring artists and people that had kind of built the culture of New Orleans back to New Orleans. If cities went bankrupt, I ended up working with them to come up with the strategies that they wouldn't end up bankrupt again. And I did some work with regional sustainability and in particular with Eco Canada, I was kind of their in-house economist for about a decade, uh, which is the Environmental Association of Canada. So I'd learned a little bit about environmental uh, sustainability and environmental work in general. So kind of a, a hodgepodge of different stuff. Yeah, so there's a variety uh, of industries yes, and yes. subjects, but you're just always dealing with the numbers associated with it, I guess. Yes. So. Uh, it's it, Feasibility can be pretty broad. Like, what do you need to do to make something work? Mm -hmm. um, and what do you need to focus on? Sometimes uh, you can do an analysis that, you know, there's 10,000 things you can focus on, but there's three that make all the difference. Let's figure out what those three are and focus on them. Okay. So, so you did that uh, for several years here in Amarillo, yep. sort of freelancing and, and yep. working out of your home. Did you ever figure out how to uh, how to get out of the house and, and actually meet people? And I finally opened an office after a long time. Uh, I had an office on the ninth floor of the uh, United Bank building. Okay. Um, so at one point we had about 14 people that worked for us here. I uh, kind of built, we, we had a nice little business going. Uh, so it wasn't just you then? No. Didn't say Chris, um, freelance economist. On no. Um, it just carried our name and we, uh, uh, RDA Global is the name. Uh, and so you did that for several years until um, a few years ago, another opportunity sort of came about. So right. tell me about that. So a few years ago, my dad <laughs> retired and he was going through what I consider to be a retirement crisis. Um, he had nothing to do. He was driving my mom crazy. What did he retire from? He had worked primarily in the beverage industry. Okay. Uh, so he'd, he had done a lot of different sorts of things. Probably the thing he's probably well known for, he was instrumental in starting the brand Sunkiss Soft Drinks in 1979. Wow. All right. And worked with the Beach Boys and came up with a good vibrations yeah. theme and uh, worked with the of all of the marketing and uh, sales aspects of growing that business in its first five years. So he he actually knew a little bit about beverages. He's okay. actually quite qualified in that area. But the thing that he came to me with was he said, I want to start a craft whiskey distillery. Will you help me? And putting on like my experience as an economist, I looked at this and thought this is possibly one of the worst ideas I've ever seen in my life. And certainly one of the worst to ever come across my desk. I thought this uh, absolutely cannot make money. It's just going to, you know, lose a fortune. Um, and you're a professional who is exactly. trained to evaluate that sort of thing. So <laughs> the risk assessment is a big part of yeah. feasibility. And I couldn't, think of a project that I would consider to be more risky uh, than this one and more likely to fail. And so... Why is that? Like broad strokes, what, just, what makes it such a bad idea? Yeah, just uh, generally speaking, in a whiskey, whiskey is very regulated, so there's a lot of regulation. That's a very uh, uncertain path to kind of get started. Plus, you're going to take a lot of money and put it into making barrels of bourbon that are going to sit in a warehouse for years or potentially decades. Mm -hmm. The longer and they sit, the better the, they are, theoretically. 
theoretically, although I have had some bad quality that's pretty old. So I was pretty sure that that we're going to maybe in a few years or a decade taste it and see if it's any good. And if it is, we'll then try to market it, which is extremely difficult okay. to do. So this just seemed like a very long shot sort of thing. But I could tell my dad wanted to spend time with me. And we were not that close. But I mean, we were close, but we weren't that close at the time. And he just wanted to get to know me. Uh, that's, what I, that's what I saw in him asking me. And so I told him, uh, why don't we do a feasibility study on opening a craft whiskey distillery? And I kind of went into that thinking, you know, I get hired all the time to tell people if this is a good idea or a bad one. About 90% of the time, it's actually a bad idea. And so I didn't see any problem with studying it. Mm -hmm. And I thought we would probably have a lot of fun. We were going to visit a lot of whiskey distilleries. We're going to drink a lot of whiskey together, take some whiskey classes. Dad and I are going to bond and get him through his retirement crisis. And then we're going to come to our senses and decide this is a terrible idea and we should never do it. That's what I signed up for. And then, and we did all that and we had a really good time. And then about six years ago, state laws in Texas changed and it made it more economically feasible to open a craft whiskey distillery. So we did. Was that just like an easing of regulations? I mean, I I know we can go into like really arcane details when it comes to the alcoholic beverage codes and stuff, but like, like what was that? That one switch that kind of made it better. Before those laws changed, if you came to see me at the distillery, I could not tell you what I made. You could not taste it. You couldn't buy it. You definitely couldn't buy a drink of it. You couldn't buy a bottle of it. And I couldn't tell you where you could. Okay. (laughs) I would consider that to be highly restrictive. Was anybody making whiskey in Texas or was it? There were a few. Um, Hmm. There there was basically two. There was Balcones Whiskey and Garrison Brothers. Uh, They were the only two in Texas. But nobody knew they existed because they couldn't tell anybody anything, right? They were in their infancy. Okay, uh, just getting started. And those laws changed and it kind of made it more economically feasible. So... We thought, well, maybe if we can raise the money to do it, then we'll do it. Uh, We invested as well ourselves and um, basically kind of went to like all of our friends and colleagues and people that wanted to just basically we told them very much up front that, you know, we refer to that time as the time when we were two guys in a chart. Um, So we had two guys, that was me and dad. Okay. And we had these charts and these charts were beautiful. They were awesome. You just can't even believe how great these charts were. Um, people liked our charts. They, they got really excited about them, but that's all we had was just two guys and, and a lot of great charts. And that was six years ago. That was about six years okay. ago. And you were still living full-time in Amarillo. Full-time time? in Amarillo. Right. And people liked our charts enough that they said, well, you know, we'll throw some money in the hat and uh, let's, let's, let's do it together. So it ended up being uh, a lot of people just local to Austin, to Amarillo, friends and colleagues that had just wanted to, you know, very, 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 very community-based approach to starting a whiskey distillery. And uh, none of us took too big of a risk. We all knew this was extremely unlikely to be successful. And so (laughs) we just thought it would be fun. And so, and and then we were kind of overwhelmed by how many people wanted to be part of it and um, actually have... um, 
about 200 people that, you know, threw some money in a hat and helped us to get off the ground. Okay. So it ended up being a very community-based uh, approach to building a whiskey distillery. I want to assume that at some point, you know, being an economist, you actually sat down and started thinking, is this something that can make money and how can it make money, you know, without mm. having to wait 10 years to open the barrels and see if it's any good? Did you sort of have a timeline? Did you think, all right, we might be okay five years from now or 10 years from now? I mean, what, what were you looking at? Generally speaking, whiskey distilleries can turn to be cash flow positive somewhere between their the end of their first decade and the beginning of the second decade. Okay, uh, that's a long time. The or end of the second decade. So somewhere between 10 and 20 years is when they can kind of turn over from being cash flow negative to cash flow positive. So especially if you hand make everything yourself. Um, so it just meant that we had to kind of go in expecting that um, even though we, we, we do try to make money, we do try, but the problem is that in the early years, you're, you're spending so much money on making whiskey that you'll sell in the future mm-hmm. that it can't make up for the very small amount that you have available early to release. And so you've got to kind of just accept that there's a joke in the whiskey industry. You want to know how to make a small fortune in the whiskey industry? Start with a big one. Hmm. Um, the, it, it's, you got to kind of just accept that it's going to take time. And that has, I think, been one of the things that's made this journey in particular miraculous. Because we're now six years into it. Uh, we can kind of see somewhere in the future that potential of that happening. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's exciting, you know, like it gets more likely as the, if, if you have a good product, um, and as people begin to, if they like it, that, that definitely increases the chances that you'll actually turn cash flow positive. Were you a whiskey drinker when your dad first came to you and said, I want to make craft whiskey? I really was very rudimentary. Like, I was like, I mean, I didn't dislike whiskey, but I definitely would not have considered myself to be a whiskey connoisseur. Okay. My dad a little bit more, but not really so much of a connoisseur as a tinkerer. And he, I probably should not tell this story on the air, but I will anyway. Um, (laughs) You know, we were thinking about starting the whiskey distillery. And to start one properly, legally, you have to first get a still. And then you have to register it. So we thought, well, okay, that's what we're supposed to do. Let's go ahead and buy a little still. We bought a little still. We thought, you know, maybe we potentially might have thought of distilling in our garage, which is a felony. You definitely should never do that. I'm not saying that we did, but we we thought we would. And so we bought my dad a still for Christmas. And we thought, you know, we're going to register it, right? So, So we got the still. Shortly after, we got a letter from the Treasury Department saying, we just want you to know that we know mm-hmm. that you own a still. And we want you to know that we know that you don't have a license for that still. And we want you to know that just the fact that you've ordered one and own it is a felony. And we're going to think about what we're going to do about it. Mm. Yours truly, Treasury <clears throat> Department. Yeah, uh, I was like, well... I guess now it's probably really in our interest that we we get serious about it. That still is now fully licensed. It was kind of like we were we were shocked to get that letter from the Treasury Department. So, tell me about deciding where to base the still. I mean, you were in Amarillo at the time, but it's located in Austin. It's it is. named 
still Austin. So talk to me about that decision-making process. So when we first started looking at it, we thought, you know, we wanted, we want to do things that are very authentic to Texas. So a hundred percent of our grains are grown by Texas farmers. We hand make everything at the distillery from grain to glass. We're very honest and authentic in what we do. So we originally had thought we would do it in Amarillo or potentially in East Texas in Silver Springs where my dad lives. And I think part of my dad's dream was to get up every morning and go and stir the mash and, yeah. you know, make some whiskey that they kind of saw as his daily activity uh, that kind of helps with easing into this retirement life. And we spend a little time with the Amarillo Small Business Association okay. and PJ Pronger was the director there at the time, now Gina. And... We said, you know, here's what we're wanting to do. And he was like, you know, it really does make sense what you're wanting to do, but you got to recognize that Amarillo is a small market. Um, You may want to consider, you know, branching out if you're wanting to make something that's very authentic to Texas. And we tended to agree with what he shared with us. And I had lived in Austin before. I really loved my time at University of Texas. And um, Austin has 2 million residents, but we have... Um, now today about 28 million visitors a year who basically all come there to drink and have a good yep. time. And we really thought you know, Austin had never had uh, a whiskey distillery, a legal whiskey distillery anyway, inside of the city limits, uh, not at least since prohibition. We thought, you know, being Austin's first uh, bourbon distillery would be something that people would enjoy and fact that these laws had changed and you could actually taste it or even buy a bottle to take home, we thought it kind of increases the chances of success. We kind of like at the time, I remember like talking like some of my best friends and my family and everything about like, well, you know, I don't think it's gonna be that hard. I can, I I travel all the time now anyway. I don't necessarily think it's going to be that hard for me to run this business from Amarillo. And they just thought I was crazy. They thought that is that is nuts. And I would have to say they're right. It, it is, is nuts. nuts. <laughs> it is nuts. <laughs> it's nuts. Uh, but I literally spend exactly half of my time in Amarillo. I, I come here every Monday and Tuesday. I have three beautiful, wonderful children here in Amarillo. Uh, so I come here every Monday and Tuesday and every other weekend. So each week I make at least one trip to Austin and back. Some weeks I make two trips to Austin and back. I'm the poster child for needing a direct flight. From yeah, exactly. Austin I was going to say, are you flying or are you driving? Are you making that? I do. Recently, I've done about half and half. Flight schedules don't always match whiskey schedules. So I have to kind of take what I can. I try to fly as much as I can. It's a little bit easier, um, but it oftentimes isn't faster. Um, yeah. So, because you got to go through Dallas and if a flight gets canceled, you might be there for a long time. So I know every route that there is of getting home. Um, none of them are fast. None of them are easy or fast, but that's how I've done it. I recently realized that I have not slept in the same bed continuously for more than five days in about five years. Wow. And I I recently made a new commitment that one week out of the month, I'm going to try to just stay in Amarillo, not go to Austin. That will give me consecutively at least 10 days 
of staying in my bed. And you're once. the you're the CEO, so you're not actually in a position where you're having to stir the mash or anything like that. So theoretically, you've got things kind of automated. You just need to provide some oversight. Is that something that you can do from Amarillo, or does it require you know you to be on site um, that many days a week? I have a good amount of things that I can do from Amarillo. Uh, there's a lot of things that happen on a computer or on a screen. There's a lot of regulation in the whiskey industry, yeah. plenty of reports to fill out of different types. Uh, so that kind of keeps me busy when I'm here. And I can actually, I mean, I, I work when I'm in Amarillo 100%. There's a lot of need in the whiskey industry to be out there with people talking about what you're doing and making relationships and uh, so, and I love doing that. And so, uh, when I'm in Austin, I'm doing that a lot more, uh, or if I'm, you know, anywhere else outside of Austin, but, and I do it here too, recently a little bit more than normal. So it's, it's actually probably a good balance. Um, it, it works out pretty well schedule wise. It's not bad. I have a phenomenal team of people at still Austin whiskey, uh, from our, uh, general manager straight on down. We have, some of the world's leading talent for distilling and making a product that's truly a reflection of our place and who we are and maturing excellent quality of whiskey. I'm really pretty fortunate. Um, I think maybe coming from a consulting background, you tend to rely on other people's expertise. Yeah. Uh, and so I just try to make sure that we're all kind of go in the same direction and figure out how to pay the bills. That's kind okay. of my job. So tell me about the product itself. I know we're in a season right now where uh, you've recently released, I guess, the second release. Second from batch. Austin, second batch. Mm -hmm. And it has a distinct tie to this area. So yes. tell me about it. So um, Justin Cronover at Lone Star Family Farm, which is located near Sunray, grew all, all of the grains uh, that go into this second batch. Um, what are those grains? You know, just for people that maybe don't know how whiskey becomes whiskey. Okay, so whiskey only has really one physical ingredient, two physical ingredients, water and grains. You can say the yeast uh, is an ingredient as well. Probably the one that people don't think of and actually is the most important and influential is the climate. Uh, climate has a big in input into what the whiskey tastes like. But we are primarily a bourbon distillery. Bourbon has to at least be made from 51% or more corn. And we work, 100% of our grains come from Texas farmers. And we only work with Texas grain varieties. Okay. So rather than working with yellow corn that you would typically taste in uh, bourbons that are made in Kentucky, and yellow corn grows very well and plentiful in the Ohio Valley, here in Texas, we have a variety of white corn uh, that is kind of dominant here in our Tex-Mex culture. If you think about like our corn chips and our right. corn tortillas, those tend to be uh, made with uh, white corn. The reason is simply that white corn has always grown in this region. We have about 10,000 years of uh, experience in, of white corn uh, growing to a large extent domesticated in this region and um, it's part of, part of why we got a, te a Tex-Mex culture here is white, white corn's a big part of our right. agricultural base. And so we work with the white corn. It's very delicious. It's very light, sweet. It's a little less corny, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, than yellow corn. And we also work with rye. We work with a variety of rye called Elbon rye, which is kind of sweet and spicy. And 
one of the things that this was not really an uh, intent uh, with the whiskey. Our intent with the whiskey is really to focus on what makes us different in our regional grain base. But we had kind of a surprise that happened that's been a very good one. The Elbon rye, Elbon rye is a variety that grows well in Texas. Most rye is grown in Canada or in northern climates. They grow a different variety there called a bruzy, and it makes a very spicy uh, whiskey. Elbon rye that grows here in Texas is kind of sweet and spicy, with, mm. and it balances the spice a bit. And if you think about it, sweet and spicy is a flavor profile that's a big part of Texas. Sure. Uh, you can see it in our Tex-Mex, our barbecue, even like our sugar cookies tend to have a little bit of cinnamon in them. And uh, you don't really see that in other regions of the United States or even of the world. Like sweet and spicy is a particular profile. And I think it actually kind of describes us as people. Yeah. <laughs> you think about it, like we're, we are sweet. We are we are kind, warm people here. But we'll uh, hog tie you if we, we see you wreck your pickup. Exactly, trip. exactly. We're not without spice. Yeah. And so that sweet and spiciness, we, we didn't really set out to make like the sweet and spicy whiskey. That wasn't our intent. We just wanted to focus on what we grow here. But we're really excited that what came out is kind of an expression, not just of our grains and our farmers, but also who we are as people. Uh, and that's a big part of what we're really proud of. And honoring what makes us different is a big part of Still Austin Whiskey. Okay. Um, I think that for my dad and I, we honored kind of where we are in life and just honored that we're going to try to get to know each other. And we, we honored kind of what makes us different as well. And that has come to be kind of a rally cry for us. There's a lot of really excellent scotches out there. There's delicious Kentucky bourbons. But we believe that we, if we will honor really what makes us different, it will be spectacular in and of itself without needing to be something else. And so this this new release made with grains grown here in the Panhandle and it's available now in yes. Panhandle liquor stores. I mean, yes. Is there a particular place that people can get it? Or You will probably be able to find it uh, most liquor stores kind of throughout Amarillo. At Party Stop and M&R and Pinkies. Uh, there's a number of other uh, really nice local independent liquor stores that are just kind of owner operated. And we are very local to local business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like to support local businesses as well. All three of the ones I mentioned are are locally owned here in West Texas. And so, so you'll be able to find it there. You can find it at, uh, there's a number of bars and restaurants that have decided to adopt us and, and okay. make us part of their menu and their expressions and the things that they serve. And so we're really honored by that. You should be able to order a glass at uh, just about any nice spot around town. And people would just need to ask for Still Austin Still whiskey, Austin, right? I mean, I would say to ask for Still Austin bourbon whiskey. Okay. So. And tell me about the plans from here. I know with, you know, you, you have different barrels, you let them age different lengths of time, you release certain things. What can we look forward to in the next few years, you know, coming out of, of what you're doing? We have a lot of exciting things coming in the next couple of years. We, because we, a big part of our project has been to rebuild a local grain economy. So when we first started, there was a, there's a commodity system for buying grain, but it has no sense of regionality. Hmm. So we went to the closest grain elevator, asked them, you know, what they could provide, you know, from central Texas. And they said, if you're looking for food quality grain, it's going to be coming from Europe, not central Texas. Really? We were shocked by that. And we thought, well, okay. But when you think about it, 
brain elevators are not really designed to be able to separate out different, you know, this is a grain from this farm or that one. There's really no uh, secondary supply chain for storage of grains. There's no way to get them cleaned. Back before prohibition, there was a lot of like cleaning was done typically at the farm, not at the grain silo. Mm -hmm. um, so you typically are the, the, the buyer. And so you typically you had grain cleaning. You typically had a way to get the grains from farm to market. All that infrastructure was really destroyed by prohibition. Mm -hmm. And so there was no longer a way to get access to, like you went to farmers, you know, sure, Chris, we'll grow some things for you, but how are you going to pick it up? Where are you going to put it? Yeah. Uh, how are you going to get it clean? Uh, and so we had to really work with farms and with other people in rebuilding the uh, supply chain and value chain for a local grain economy. So what that meant is we had to work with people like Maverick Malthouse, uh, which is actually based here in Vega. Uh, we had to work with Texmalt, uh, which they are a group of guys from Lubbock who have now out, they operate out of Dallas. And uh, we have a couple of uh, malt houses now in Texas that they play an important role in being able to store grain. They buy grain in larger quantity. And so they can buy on behalf of us and other distillers or brewers. Okay. And it gives brewers and distillers more things to be able to work with. We also, you know, along the way met bakers and uh, millers and people who wanted to get access to local grain varieties. And we are really excited that, you know, Austinites and Amarilloites and everyone in Texas wants to have more choices in what they eat and drink. And so... Farmers, what they need more than anything um, is a better price for their grain and lots of places to sell it. Right. That market is really important. And so establishing that market and the market apparatus as well as the physical apparatus has been a big part of this project. Okay. And we're really happy to be playing a, a role in doing that. And it's not just us. It's a a lot of folks in a movement towards valuing what we have locally. It's, it's amazing. Like you can, as a farm today, you could grow say a variety of bloody butcher red corn and sell it at a very high price to restaurants that want to have a farm to table offering. Yeah. What you don't sell to restaurants, you can sell to a mill that wants to be able to provide a specialty type of uh, flour for their, customers. Um, what you don't sell to a mill, you could probably sell to us or another distillery that's interested in getting access to a local and interesting grain variety. And so it gives the farmer a lot of opportunities to sell at a higher price with kind of a guarantee that there'll be somebody who will take everything that's left. Yeah, That really wasn't in place when we started. And that's been a big part of our project. And which is really not something that anybody would ever think of prohibition. And we think about its impact on alcohol sales or whatever, but you mm -hmm. don't think that what it also had this enormous impact on agriculture and farming. And In the farm press, we've been covered a lot because about five years ago, we started working with Texas A&M to grow grain varieties that haven't been grown in Texas in over a hundred years. Really? So we went back to the agricultural census of 1919 which is the first agricultural census of Texas and also happens to be the year before prohibition went into effect. 
And so we had all of this great data on what we used to grow here uh, ostensibly for its flavor mm -hmm. uh, in beer and in whiskey making. And many of those grain varieties are now extinct and a lot of them were wiped out by 1929, 10 years later at the next agricultural census. Right. And so Texas A&M has a unique uh, opportunity to get access to the USDA food and uh, seed bank. And so they were able to get like basically a one inch by one inch square of antique seeds that have not been, you know, these, these grain varieties that haven't been grown in Texas and all this time. The first year was just like very, very small plot and second year is very small field. And so it's taken several years to build up enough uh, seed to be able to grow those grains. But this last year we had our first commercial harvest and a few years from now we'll be producing some whiskeys that no one in Texas has tasted wow. in over a hundred years. And we're really proud to be able to bring those things back. Yeah, absolutely. To kind of close out this section, I know that, you know, you, you're not originally from Amarillo. You did spend, you know, quite an amount of time here. Do you, do you feel like Amarillo is, is part of the secret sauce of still Austin? You know, absolutely. That, absolutely. I really think that like for me, at least, um, I need time to be quiet. I need time to think, to work. And I love coming home. I love it. I couldn't be happier when I'm here. I love being in Austin too. But it's very busy. Yeah. I'm go, go, go. It's people all the time. There's a lot of things going on. But when I come to Amarillo, I have the chance to be still for a minute, focus, and get some things done. I also have the time to recharge, which for me comes from spending time with my kids. Yeah. And it still feels like home. Absolutely. You're, you're coming back home after I, a few days in Austin, I guess. Exactly. I, I have a home in Austin as well, but... I, I really feel at home when I'm in Amarillo. This episode of Hey Amarillo Podcast is sponsored by SKP Creative, a full-service agency using traditional and digital marketing strategies. Now, one of its specialties is social media. And if you're running a business, the quickly changing world of social media can be more than a little bit tricky to figure out on your own. That's why you need to talk to the team at SKP Creative. They develop data-driven communication strategies to share your story and connect with your audience. Visit skpcreative.com today to learn more, and you can even schedule a free social media evaluation for your business. SKP Creative, make it happen. So uh, we're about to start the eight straight section, but before we do that, Chris is going to actually pour a couple of little tumblers of, of this Amarillo-based whiskey. Tasting here. Well, what do you taste? What do you smell on the nose? So, um, I'm I'm far from a whiskey aficionado, and I'm not going to like sniff it and get hints of coriander or anything like that. <laughs> I, I do get that familiar peppery kind of spicy yes um, smell to it. Mm -hmm. Definitely, it's like this is a very nice whiskey. We we use a, a philosophy um, that comes from cognac and armagnac that makes the spirit very soft, well rounded with finesse. And our, our goal in maturing the spirit is really to make it faultless. Whiskeys can have a lot of faults. Faults get in the way. You can't taste what's good in them because something bad is there. Uh, but if you take the time and effort to really truly make something that is faultless, 
then the natural flavor of your local grain can really shine. Okay. And so for us, like the things I'm most proud of of this is just the the smell of the spice of the mm -hmm. rye, like you're mentioning the peppery uh, kind of character, but like uh, the spice also has kind of like baking spices and like you might uh, detect like a note of cinnamon or um, allspice or kind of like these warmer uh, baking spices. And it's it, it it's also kind of balanced with some confectionery notes like caramel and vanilla. And those, okay. Uh, those like very traditional notes to to bourbon. Should All we right. taste? Let's taste. Yeah. Cheers. That's very good. Thank you. Yeah, it's, I like it it's, too. It's very smooth. If if I had the language of a whiskey expert, I'm sure I could tell you it had a lot more different flavors and stuff to it. But um, no, it's it's very good. Yeah, we're super proud of it. It's a very nice long finish. The One of the things that is kind of unusual about it is that it's very, like you say, it's smooth, uh, that softness and kind of roundness on your tongue. Mm -hmm. But it's also 100.4 proof, right. uh, which would normally be one of like a whiskey that's kind of hot. It's kind of right. tends to slap your tongue. It's kind of, uh, uh, or could be relatively harsh. So it's kind of got a good balance of uh, having a very bold flavor but being very soft. Without making your eyes water when you drink it. Right. Yes. Okay. So we hope people will just enjoy it for what it is. I mean, this is not the oldest whiskey in the world and probably won't be our very best that we ever release. We probably have great things still ahead of us. We're very proud of it simply because we're proud of the farmers who grew it. We're proud of having made it from grain to glass ourselves. We do everything in-house and we're proud that it's like a representation of who we are as people. Yes. Yeah. Kind of sweet and spiciness. So. Okay. Well, now that we've done that, let's move on to the eight straight section. Go ahead. This, this part of the it. show, uh, I call eight straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. As my guest, you get to answer. So the first one, and this is not one I've asked anyone else, what's your favorite whiskey-based drink? So assuming you're not just going to drink it uh, neat, you know, straight from the bottle, is there a, a drink that you like? Yeah, not to evade the question, but it's probably just the one I'm about to drink. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm a big fan of old fashions. Mm -hmm. I love a Manhattan, which is typically made with rye whiskey, not right. bourbon. However, ours makes a particularly spectacular Manhattan because of its high rye component uh, in the bourbon. And we have a, high, a particularly unusual high amount of rye in the mash bill. I have recently discovered a Bijou, which is kind of a uh, an older classic drink. It's quite nice. Um, I tend to like cocktails that have less or no sugar, um, okay. so that the not the ingredients from the spirit or any other natural ingredient can really shine. Okay, with ours, it really pairs well with peaches. I've had some just like a little peach smash uh, with the bourbon that's been quite delicious. Kind of doesn't really necessarily surprise me because we grow peaches here in Texas. Yeah. And so this, these kind of uh, aspects when you start thinking about like we have, we are of a region, we have a certain flavor that we are accustomed to and then we like those flavors. And we have a relationship with our land and uh, our environment. And that's been one of my faves uh, recently. Okay. So my next question, I don't know if you'll answer this one or not, but what's your favorite Amarillo restaurant? Well, I have basically a ton that I love. So it's really hard to pick a favorite restaurant. And I know you've got relationships with several restaurants that serve your whiskey. So. Yes. Yes. And I thank all of them for supporting me. Uh, I couldn't, couldn't be more honored or happy to have them carry our product. Um, but I think probably one that has stood out recently for me is Public House because they um, went to a little bit additional effort to select their own half barrel 
Okay. Um, that's a, it's a little bit different, um, has a little more, uh, going on in it, uh, a little bit more depth and it brings out some notes that you can, you can taste in their particular selection. Every barrel of bourbon is different. And so the coupe that they selected, uh, it's just, it's absolutely delicious. You can only taste it at public house. Okay. So it's not, that's it. Whiskey that's available anywhere else. It, it is available only at public house. Um, and I thought that was really nice and not, not many restaurants take that kind of attention to building a whiskey selection, uh, that they offer something that you can't taste somewhere else. And that's just part of their, what they're wanting to bring. And, uh, we were honored that they even approached us about it. They asked us and we said, absolutely. What does this area have too much of? I think this is one of the more difficult questions to answer. There's a lot of things that are here that we have a lot of that are good. If I was going to pick one thing that I think we might have too much of, and you might describe it as having too little of as well, we have we have a lot of, like comparing this place with Austin, uh, since I kind of get some time in each of those, I, I experience Austin as having very little waste, per se. Okay. Like outside we have compost, we have single stream recycling we have multi-stream recycling so if we're just trying to like make sure that our glass always gets recycled we put it in a separate bin we have a zero waste policy at still austin so nothing ever goes in the trash and it's completely unremarkable in in austin texas zero waste policy they're like yeah everybody does uh the it's a regulation you have to compost everything we have a lot of trash a lot of things that I like, I, I'm always shocked at like when I, when I uh, go to dispose of something in public space here, how little options we've got right. of where things go to take care of our world and the things that we've got. And I think about, you know, here sometimes people argument, arguing, you know, like, oh, well, you know, we, we have, you know, we produce so little as compared to some other bigger cities and we've got plenty of land here to fill. And so why not have yeah, it to go just and, toss, it, toss it in the ground? It's not going to hurt anybody. Um, but I also think that we have to take care of the world that we're in and we only have one of them and we're doing a lot of damage to it these days. And I think if we are raising up a younger generation that doesn't share those values, we put at risk the sustainability, not only of the world at large, but also even of our region. Um, and so I think it's something that we have, we have too much trash. Okay. Uh, that's why I was going to pick one thing. We got too much trash. And then I'll assume your answer to the next question, what do we have not enough of, uh, is recycling options, I opportunities think recycling for, would be yeah. great. We do, um, uh, we do have some of the, you know, like I think on the flip side, uh, we, our farmers are some of the most advanced thinking farmers in the world in terms of how they conserve water, how they build up organic base inside of their soil, the way that they cut carbon and the way that they produce. Uh, but I think we could stand when it comes to waste. That's just one area where we could really stand to have a little bit more thought and options uh, on a public basis. What's the most underrated aspect of living here? Quiet. People do not realize how great it is to have the ability to be quiet still. When you have a little bit of quiet, you can think. Hmm. I think it is, you have it here. We have a slower pace of life that's very rich. I think that we don't necessarily realize it. I do see it in how independent we are. Yeah. That they, we're not followers in the panhandle. So you see the effect of it. 
you know, even from hog tying somebody. Yeah. You, you don't really appreciate how important that quiet is. When was the last time you visited the Big Texan? I visited the Big Texan on Friday of last week. Really? Yep. Uh, Bobby Lee and I sat down and talked for a little bit, and we were friends, and so we just caught up with each other. And so, yeah, I've been to the Big Texan quite a bit. Is there a chance they'll serve the product there? I think there is. Okay. I think there is. Um, maybe at Starlight Ranch as well. Yeah. All so. right. What's your favorite Amarillo neighborhood? Well, I do like my neighborhood. I have to say, I like all neighborhoods around Amarillo. Like I like the diversity in the neighborhoods. Uh, I'm a marathon runner, so I've run just about every single neighborhood from the far northeast uh, to the far southwest. Mm -hmm. uh, and like really all corners of Amarillo I've covered. And I like... I mean, I love the Northeast neighborhoods for like the diversity of like languages spoken yeah. there. There's like almost a hundred languages spoken at home uh, at some of the schools in that part of town. And then I love, I lived in Bivens for a long time and uh, ran around the Wolfland neighborhood and, um, and Southwest Amarillo and uh, Southeast Amarillo. And so I, I've, I'm kind of a, a fan, but I live in West Hills. So, and, and I love my little quiet neighborhood. It's, it's wonderful. We have a beautiful park. It's a unique little neighborhood. It is. It doesn't it's feel great. like any other. And it has built in air conditioning. I don't know if you know, but the, the fact that they water the, um, golf course on a, on a daily basis gives a regular air conditioning built mm. in to West Hills. Sort it's of a mist always effect. Yes. When exactly. from the Southwest, it just kind of blows it. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Yeah. Cool neighborhood. All right. Literally. What's your favorite building in Amarillo? My favorite building in Amarillo is my house. All right. Um, my house is awesome. I love my house, and I feel so fortunate to live there. Um, my house was built by John Ward. Um, he was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright and was one of the earlier architects uh, kind of working in Amarillo's development. He designed several of the buildings downtown and was the local architect of record for the Frank Lloyd Wright house that is okay. here. Uh, I live in his home and studio, which is not, it's not a very large house. It's quite small um, and in a charming and understated neighborhood of West Hills. Uh, he designed several of the homes for my neighbors. And my house, to my knowledge, was the first cinder block house built in Amarillo. Really? A new century modern style has kind of a moat around the house, interestingly, uh, with a sunken garden that was very experimental for a place that's known for high plains. Yeah. He, he created sort of a oasis uh, for himself and uh, his family, uh, kind of away from everything else, but also very accessible to the land. And you have this sense of connection to it. It's very, it has a lot of classic Frank Lloyd Wright characteristics like finding the front door is very difficult. Yeah. People constantly can't find how they get into my house. It's it's a wonderful, it's very small. It's a very small house. And it's it's just great. My kids and I just love it. What year was it built? Uh, it was built in 1952. Chris, I like to end by asking my guests to endorse something. What's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience related to this area? Well, this endorsement is going to be difficult for people to follow up on just yet. But I will endorse Family Farms. Okay. Capital F, capital F. Family so that's Farms. that's a title of a farm. It's the title of an organization of some of the most forward-thinking family-owned farms in the United States. Okay. 
Family Farms has member farms kind of throughout the entire United States, and one of them is uh, Lone Star Family Farms. All right. One of the things that I really like about Family Farms, they have embarked on many projects to give people a sense of connection to where their things come from. And uh, we are working on a special project with them right now where uh, with a QR code, you'd be able to take a look at a bottle of our whiskey and with that QR code, see where was the grain grown? Okay. When was it planted? How much water was used in the making and the growing of those crops as compared to other standards? How sustainably was this made? What kind of fertilizers or other additives were used? When was it harvested? When did it come to the distillery? When was it distilled and put into a barrel? But you can look back when was it bottled those things you get a sense of connection to the people families who take care of all of us on a daily basis okay you can see they've got a new project right now that's phenomenal with their blue corn they're making blue corn chips it gives you the same kind of insights into the people that grow the the grains that feed us every day you start looking at like where where your things come from you don't always know. Uh, yeah. You know, you don't have that, you know, here's my Cheerios. I have no idea where they came from. They came from Kellogg's, um, whoever that is. But I really love when people go to the effort to let you see into what they do, have that transparency. And Family Farms, to my knowledge, is leading the charge on that for farmers it's great to have that connection to where things come from. And I think more than anybody I know, they're giving a window into that. And their level of focus on sustaining this region is outstanding. We're depleting the Agalaga aquifer at a thousand times the rate of its replenishment, or we have traditionally, and it will go dry. And when that happens, it'll be economic and potentially human crisis and catastrophe that may be impossible to recover from unless we do something now to conserve that water. And they have been on the forefront of looking at every way possible that these family farms can be around for the next few centuries. And we want to support that 100%. And I would hope that everybody in Amarillo, I think that everybody that I know would definitely want to do the same. All right. So look out for things from, from uh, family farms. Okay. I love that. Chris Seals, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Jason, it was a pleasure. All right. Cheers. Cheers. And that concludes the show. First of all, thanks to Amber Morgan of the Manny Camper and SKP Creative for sponsoring this episode. I want to say thanks also to Chris for the interview. You can learn more about his distillery at stillaustin.com and definitely look for bottles of the new bourbon whiskey at uh, local places like MNR, Party Stop, and it's also served exclusively, I think, at Public House if you're a whiskey drinker. If not, you know, you can just support them and being, uh, be fascinated with them from afar. That's cool too. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode. And of course, I want to say thanks to my executive producers, Neil Nossiman, Patrick Burns, Ryan Pennington, Wes Reeves, Daniel Davis, Corey Burns, Jennifer Callahan, Chriselda, Josh Wood, Wilson Lemieux, Jason Burr, and Katie Linger. 
all of those good people support this show through Patreon. So if you want to be one of those, go to patreon.com slash heyamarello. And if you like the show, you can support it that way too. Even if you don't though, I still love you and I appreciate you for listening. So thank you so much. This has been episode 111, 111st episode. My name is Jason Boyette and I'll see you next week.